production. What's up, good people? It's your girl, Vera Smith-Winfrey, and I'm back with another episode of the No Good People podcast, celebrating good people through good conversation. Today's guest is Dr. Mia Kirk, an accomplished educator and researcher with expertise in adult learning, leadership, and educational administration. She holds a Doctor of Education organization and leadership from Teachers College, Columbia University, as well as a Master of Education in Arts and Education with a focus on administration, planning, and social policy from Harvard University Graduate School of Education. Dr. Kirk has a passion for research and has published several works, including her doctoral dissertation entitled Black Women's Use of Virtual Educator Affinity Groups While Working in Hostile Environments. She has presented her research both nationally and internationally at conferences such as the American Education Research Association Annual Meeting and the International Conference on Diversity in Organizations, Communities, and Nations. With a diverse range of teaching experiences within the P-12 landscape, Dr. Kirk has also instructed courses at both the undergraduate and graduate levels. Now, Mia and I both attended Rutgers University and pledged Delta Sigma Theta Sorority Incorporated through Xi New Chapter. She's not only my little sister, but a very dear friend. Welcome, Dr. Kirk, and thank you for being part of the No Good People family. I'm really excited to have you here today. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here as well. Great. So, Mia, where are you from and what was your childhood like? Oh, we're going back there. Okay. Um, (laughs) Well, you know, I'm originally from North Carolina and I spent the first half of my childhood there and born in Greenville, raised in Durham, North Carolina. And then I moved to New Jersey to live with my father around nine or 10 years old. And we began in East Orange for about a year and a half before moving out to Warren County. If you can imagine um, a very rural part of Northwest New Jersey, that's where I attended high school, essentially in Northwest New Jersey. So I like to say I'm I'm a Southern girl, but they don't really claim (laughs) me anymore. I'm really a Jersey girl with Southern roots. That's fair. That's fair. Yes. And are do you have siblings? Um, do they move with you when you came to New Jersey? Um, no. So I do have siblings. I do have siblings, but they did not move with me. They were a little older than I was. And so they were pretty much grown. So I moved by myself with my dad and my other two younger siblings. They have a different mother. So I'm the middle of five of my dad's children and the youngest of my mother's children. And both of my parents are deceased. Okay. Got it. Mm-hmm. And are your siblings, are you close with them? Do you see them frequently? Well, I do have a very strong relationship with uh, most of my siblings. I spend a lot of time with my, even though we're not close geographically, uh, my older siblings, my older sisters and I, we do come together a lot and go to concerts together. We travel together and we find um, meeting locations where we can see each other as frequently as possible. And, you know, nowadays you can hop on a Zoom call or FaceTime easily just to stay connected. Love it. Love it. Do you like being New Jersey or would you think about ever returning to North Carolina? Yeah, you know, I am. I am thinking about maybe relocating again um, back to the South. My son is finishing up his high school experience. And so trying to um, see that through and Mm -hmm. support him in that journey. New Jersey has been great to me, but I think I'm at that point where I might be looking for a new adventure in a few years. And so I'll be a little more open to explore what that looks like. And so I think North Carolina might be an option, but Mm -hmm. I don't know. I guess I would have to see, um, explore that a little more just to see what um, works for me and what really appeals Mm -hmm. to me. But right now I do think um, I won't be in New Jersey for a long period of time, unless something happens, something amazing happens and, and makes me stay here. But I don't see myself being in New Jersey five years from now. Oh, wow. Okay. So that quickly. Yeah. So what led to your interest in education and more specifically adult learning leadership and enough to want to pursue a doctorate degree? 
That's a good question. You know, um, when I was in high school, I don't even know if I wanted to be a teacher per se. Mm -hmm. I was really interested in science and chemistry. I, my first year of chemistry, I think it was like a college prep course. It was so fascinating to me. I did well in it. And at that point I wanted to be a pharmacist, believe it or not. And then I took AP chem and it wasn't as fun and (laughs) it was not, I didn't enjoy it at all. And so I wanted to drop the course, but my father wouldn't let me drop the course. He's like, nope, you're staying in the course. And my guidance counselor wouldn't let me drop it. And so I, in silent protest, I, I didn't do much in that course, admittedly, but it, it definitely made me decide that maybe pharmacy is not going to be for me. And so up until senior year of high school, I can't say that I had um, a direction in terms of what I wanted to do. But all throughout middle school and high school, I was uh, developing as a musician. I played the clarinet. Mm-hmm. I was very active in the school bands. I was active in regional, all state and all Eastern bands as well, playing the clarinet and the bass clarinet. And so I was also the drum major of our oh. marching band at the high school. And so you never know of these things about people I know. Right. right. <laughs> And so um, my band director, one of my favorite, all-time favorite teachers, Mr. Y, Mr. Uremzak, he said to me, why don't you be a music teacher? And I said, okay. And so that's how, that's how my, um, that's how I started in education. And so at the last minute, he helped me develop an audition tape. I think it was a tape at that time. I don't think I'm that old, but maybe I am. I think it was a tape. We, we were sitting on the auditorium stage and he would record me performing. You had to send in a tape. I actually went to Mason Grove School of the Arts at Rutgers. And so you had to send in an audition tape. And so that was like the first part of the application. Then you had to come in for an interview and then you had to perform and all of that. So um, I ended up, I had to decide between two schools and one was in North Carolina and the other one was Rutgers. And I decided on Rutgers and that's how I ended up at Rutgers. And I began my, um, so I was a bachelor, I got a bachelor's of mu- bachelor of music from Rutgers and mm-hmm. with a concentration in education for my student teaching experience, I asked my advisor, I said, can I be placed in a more urban environment? Because they were placing me in these very, very, um, suburban school districts, even though we were nestled in New Brunswick, we weren't placed in New Brunswick. I don't know anyone that was placed in New Brunswick, really, but um, more more surrounding um, suburbs. And so I thought that she would put me in New Brunswick, but no, they they found a placement for me in Newark. And so um, I was traveling to Newark for my student teaching. I student taught at Oliver Street Elementary School and Malcolm X Shabazz High School. Mm -hmm. And while I was there, I was offered a job. And so coupled with that, simultaneously applied to Teach for America, even though I was an education major, I was accepted into Teach for America. I was able to benefit from the grant, the grants that the core members receive. And so Mm -hmm. I was able to teach music under Teach for America, but I had already had a job offer with Newark Public Schools. And so that's where my career began in education. I was a music teacher at all levels, elementary, middle school, and high school while there. And then I left Newark to explore district level administration, other school districts, and school-based administration. So I was the district supervisor of visual and performing arts, and I was also a um, an assistant principal as well. And in those roles, there is a big component of professional development and professional learning. And, and so there comes that adult learning piece but a lot of times when you're entering into um, certain programs for educational administration, you don't really talk about talk a lot about adult learning theory. And so mm-hmm. I feel like some of that was missing in some of my educational admission administration coursework at the master's level. And so when I transitioned into my current role at a state university in New Jersey, I experienced some um, challenges in terms of interpersonal relationships. Um, I'm trying to be politically correct here. You don't have Um, to be though. (laughs) I really wish you wouldn't, but okay. 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 So I'll I'll be real for a moment. I did experience some mean girl behavior, you know, at that level and not surprising, you know, 
but still surprising. And then going into the university space, you have this certain, I guess, assumption that people are really intelligent, but that's not the case necessarily. I know people without the degrees who are far more intelligent than some of these people. And I'm not trying to discredit people that I work with. I I must be Mm -hmm. honest. This is just a small number, but I did experience some mean girl behavior that I had to um, deal with and, and combat for a while, Mm -hmm. um, for a few years, but that's okay. I'm, I'm a fighter. Um, And so that was something that they didn't expect. I think some of that mean girl behavior came from the whole, there's like this elitist mindset that comes across from sometimes from people who have a certain level of education or a certain type of position. And so in the position that I was in, I was able to make decisions that some people didn't understand why I was able to make those decisions because I didn't have a doctorate. She's not faculty. Who is this lady? And so um, that the experience and my current uh, workplace really pushed me to pursue my doctorate because I said I wasn't going to go for a doctorate unless there was something I was really passionate about. And I know what my experience was in the K-12 space in, in terms of experiencing microaggressions and not really being able to like address them, have them be addressed because it's almost, it's so subtle that mm-hmm. you sometimes you can't prove it and people can right. try to talk it away. And so those were my experiences in K-12. And then I was experiencing them in at the university level as well. And so I said, okay, I don't have a doctorate. Guess what? I'm going to get a doctorate. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and so that's, that's really what inspired me. And I'm really passionate about outdoor learning because I'm, I just found out I was a nerd. Uh, maybe 10 years ago. I didn't think I was a nerd. I just loved learning, you know? But right, somebody, right. Actually, one of my line sisters said to me, it's okay, nerds are cool. I'm like, nerds is a nerd. What are you talking about? So um, yeah, I'm a nerd. And so I love learning. And I'm very fascinated by all types of learning that adults pursue, whether it's informal, whether it's formal education. And so I felt like I wanted to pursue a um, degree that would give me flexibility as well. So I could okay. work, I feel like with this degree, I can work in a variety of um, spaces. So talk to me a little bit more about why that dissertation, but, and, 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 and not just so much why that dissertation topic, but also what was it that kind of, um, I guess, was there a trigger? Was there something specific that led you to choose that as a topic? You know, when I started my program, I came in with the idea of what I wanted to study. It wasn't quite what I ended up studying, but it was close. I wanted to, um, in my mind, I thought it was a matter of um, cultural competence in organizations and with individuals. But then as I begin to think about it and in conversation with various people and hearing about their experiences, it was clear that um, it had to be more. And so, and then I was also involved in like social media groups, like Black Educators Rock, and just looking at some of the posts in these groups and seeing like I'm the only black teacher in my school and then hearing the comments and, and and what people are experiencing, it made me think, well, this would be an interesting topic to think about what these um, educator groups on social media, what type of impact they're having on these people who are having these experiences. Hmm. And, it, and it just had me essentially become really passionate about their story because I've been in situations where people told a story for me. It wasn't necessarily the story, but it became the story because they got to tell it. And so the whole purpose of my dissertation 
was to really elevate this counter story or the story of individuals who are often marginalized and silenced. And so I wanted to center their voices and their experiences and to to um, give them the opportunity to say what really happened to them and mm-hmm. how it impacted them and what, if any, um, effect being in these virtual educator affinity groups had on these experiences. So that really, my, my topic shifted a bit from when I entered the program mm-hmm. to when I ended, but I feel like it was timely because I, I thought of this before the pandemic. So I was always going to do my interviews via Zoom anyway, but the pandemic shifted, the pandemic really shifted things. And so some of my classmates who weren't prepared for this, they were like preparing for in-person interviews and things of that nature. I was already on this track, so it didn't track, really right. impact me that way. So um, I felt, I felt like it was really timely, you know, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you know, and so I'd like to kind of dig a little bit deeper into that because I'd really be interested in, and I'm sure that my listeners would be interested in knowing, you know, what are some of the experiences um, that these women shared, obviously without getting into too much detail, but you know, what are some of the experiences that they had to navigate or were challenged with? How did they, I guess the lack of a better word, how did they survive it? Or what mechanisms were they using to continue to navigate it and be successful? And how did these groups, in essence, you know, being part of these affinity groups virtually actually um, help them or support them? Okay, so... Just to talk a little bit about this study, I started, so my study was a mixed method study, meaning that mm-hmm. I mixed the methods of collecting data. So I had two different phases of the, of the study. The first phase of the study consisted of a survey. So I had to find people to take the survey and they had to be educators in a P-12 public school in the United States, which was very interesting because I was getting... I was getting um, people responding from um, the UK saying they wanted to participate. I received a response from Canada as well. And I said, not yet. I can't, I can't include you yet. Maybe that's future study, but this mm-hmm. is just for United States. So this is not just happening to us here in the United States. Mm-hmm. Other people want to share their story as well. So 70 Black women educators in 24 states participated in the survey. And then from that survey, 18 women agreed to an interview and five women agreed to participate in a focus group. So the survey, like when thinking about like the survey results and the top reasons that people participate in these educator affinity groups, um, some people felt like they find in these groups, they find people who understand not only the teaching, but everything that comes with it. They liked hearing perspectives from people who look like them. Mm-hmm. And um, they feel a sense of comfort in that and camaraderie, especially if they don't experience it at work. Another reason, another um, criterion for participation was they had to um, be working in as an educator in a school that where the the teaching staff was um, majority white, essentially. And that was because the literature was indicating that um, microaggressions tend to take place more frequently in less diverse environments. So this is all based off of like a literature review. And some people were also saying they participate in these groups for informal, like informal social support. And so it's not always learning about different teaching strategies. Sometimes they're just in there, you know, mm-hmm. just, you know, letting loose. Almost like when, um, what was that? The the sitcom with the bar, Cheers, where he, Norm would go. And, oh, yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it's almost like going to the bar without the drinking. And but you're you don't have to leave your house, essentially. And, you know, it was just like essentially. An opportunity for them to. Um, share their expertise too, because some of these women were experiencing things where they had their expertise questioned. Mm-hmm. And by not only their 
colleagues, by parents, by students, by administrators. And so in this virtual community, they were able to serve as experts sometimes by sharing their knowledge. Like you have someone who may post, hey, what do you do in this type of situation? And then you have people who are able to Mm. chime in and share what's worked for them. And so it almost came, became this learning community where they didn't have, people would see them as an expert. And so that was intriguing to me as well, because sometimes in these spaces, these workplaces, you have people who are gatekeepers to what expertise looks like. And sometimes you're seeing people who don't look like you. And the people who don't look like you are seeing people who don't look like you. And Mm -hmm, so why would they mm -hmm. see you as an expert? And so there comes this concept of power. And I talk about this in my dissertation as well. This um, interpersonal power dynamic where they're able to become more empowered in these spaces than they may be in their workplaces a lot of times. And do you find that being able to be considered an expert in these groups um, is almost validating? I had quite a few interview participants use those words. They say affirming. They say that they they feel affirmed because like some of the things they're experiencing, they realize that they're not they're not crazy. It's happening, not just to them. And then they become a little like one participant. She talked about it was affirming to know that it was happening to other people. But then it was Mm -hmm. really sad, too, that it was happening to other people in other places. So I think that there is a sense of validation there. And that's helpful to some people. I I had one individual I interviewed. uh, She was a more seasoned teacher. She was the most self-assured woman I ever met. She, (laughs) she, um, she, I believe she taught in Pennsylvania and she talked about how she had no problem being the disruptor. She referred to herself as a disruptor and she would talk about how she would interrupt faculty or staff meetings and call people on their language and their choice of words and she would educate people and um she didn't she saw the groups a little differently she Mm -hmm. said that she didn't really like some of the negative things because there are some negative you know how it goes like people might be Mm -hmm. complaining or things of the nature she didn't get involved in that she saw her role in this in these groups as a resource to encourage a new teacher if they need it. And that's the only time she gets involved. She She's very um, religious. So if people are using profanity in the groups, she doesn't like that. And she doesn't um, really participate in that. She sees herself only as someone to share knowledge and her expertise to support a new teacher who's struggling. And so okay. she was probably one of the, she was one of the participants who, um, spoke about um, negative things that occur in the mm-hmm. groups, but but as I mentioned, she talked about what she knew. She was really um, assured in her role as someone who can help others in those groups. So, what? Tell me about some other things that you learned from from the participants, or you know, what was I guess what were some of the outcomes, and how well, do you see yourself? And how do you see yourself using this um, this information, using this data uh, moving forward in your in your own career? So um, I do want to mention that I used a, a scale that was um, created by researchers, Dr. Lewis and Neville. They mm-hmm. allowed they gave me permission to use their scale. They designed the scale specifically for black women to measure gendered racial microaggressions. So it's the gendered racial microaggression scale. And okay. it, it consists of four subscales. And when I say scale, I'm just talking about, it's like a measure to um, um, have people who complete the survey indicate how often they've experienced gendered racial microaggressions and how it made them feel. Like if it made them stressed out or not mm-hmm. really stressed out. So the, the term scale is used basically to talk about it being a measure. And so it had four subscales. So this was 
four subscales or four categories. And the categories were silenced and marginalized, mm-hmm. um, angry black woman, strong black woman, and assumptions of beauty and sexual objectification. And so I had in, within the survey, I had most of the partic- survey participants who went all the way to the end completed the scale as well. And it was interesting because, you know, I thought I'm not going to get to, I'm not going to hear much about assumptions of beauty and sexual objectification. I'm not going to hear about that. But I did. I, t- I heard women talking about being treated differently because of the attire they were to work. People coming to the classrooms to see what they were wearing that day. One lady talked about how one of her colleagues would pet her hair like a dog, like or animal, and talk about how how beautiful her hair was, like if she came in with uh, a braided hairstyle. And so I was, I was like floored by that. Not sh- I won't say I was shocked, but I, I still I was like, really. This, this is happening to people. And so she said in that moment in time, she didn't feel, she didn't know what, like, what do you, I mean, sometimes you, people respond differently, you know, like somebody's petting your hair and she didn't know what to do because she probably couldn't believe this one was petting her hair and talking about how beautiful it was. So, so they were impacted by um, assumptions of beauty mm-hmm. and, and things of that nature. A lot of, strong black woman um things came up in terms of being having it um the assumption that oh you could do more you're you're good with these kids so we're going to give you we're going to give you the really tough behaviors so we're going to put them all in your classroom interesting or we're going to have you do this extra work but we're not going to compensate you for your labor and so that came up a lot as well and mm-hmm. and people the, the women were very aware of the notion of the angry black woman. And if they express emotion that they would come across this way. And so many of the participants in the survey talked about feeling like their opinions weren't valued when they spoke up. And that aligns really to that silenced and marginalized piece. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so that was really a focus of this research is to elevate and unsilence them, elevate their voices. Mm -hmm. And so I I see myself being able to really branch out in a number of areas. And with a wonderful dissertation committee, we talked about this during my defense and the different ways I could expand this research or really um, have it impact different areas and different industries. I see possibly conducting the study in different industries, possibly uh, focusing on black men educators because I know they deal with their own set of issues. And so that would be, I think, some powerful research too to hear their voices. I think that this can really, I think, I would hope that this research would be able to impact policy, especially where I am in New Jersey. There's been this initiative to diversify the teacher workforce for Mm -hmm. several years. That was another reason why I decided to pursue my doctorate. And um, in the beginning, I don't think the conversations were happening about, we were talking about teacher recruitment and retention, but we, I don't think we were really talking about the types of environments we're recruiting people to. We're recruiting people to environments that, um, aren't welcoming to them necessarily mm-hmm. environments that were never designed for them. And so some people talk about this. Um, they describe what this one researcher, Pork Rashid, talks about being a fugitive in a space that was never designed for you. So they're in space trying to thrive in a, in a space that was never designed for them. And so how do we recruit how do we in good faith recruit people to work in a space that we're not willing to see there's an issue there and are willing to um, address it? So that was another reason. And I'm hoping that maybe this could impact policy where uh, school districts would be required to report teachers who aren't retained, who are either Black or BIPOC teachers and mm-hmm. have 
them have the ability to say, to give their opinion about what they experience in these work environments as well. And maybe that would have an impact on school districts really taking a closer look at what's happening within their their environment, especially between like an interpersonal power dynamics between teachers, especially mm-hmm. since mm-hmm. the teaching workforce is predominantly white and white women, as the white women. So when you, can you explore or just can you maybe describe what you mean by designed and what is a good design versus a poor design? Are you, ta- you talking about in terms of um, the workplaces? Workspace, yes. Uh-huh. Well, okay. So that's a good question. And I don't want to be, pe- I don't want to be pessimistic, but if you think about, like if we take it all the way back to Brown versus Board of Education, right? Mm-hmm. 19, 1954. And you get this mandate to desegregate schools, but you're not, you're, you're closing the black schools and, and, and you like, and you're firing the black teachers and you're firing the black, the, the black principals and you're entering into these white spaces. They're not, I can't imagine that they were always the most welcoming spaces. Mm-hmm. And given our, the political climate that we're currently experiencing in this country, we are, we have a history, like our history is grounded in these racist structures. And so I think it would take a lot. It would need to be intentional and it would need, you would need these, the educators to believe there's a problem. And so I don't think there's always going to be, those conditions aren't always going to be there. You're not always going to have educators who don't look like me, who are saying, you know what? This system doesn't work for everybody. Mm-hmm. because a lot of times these educators who look like me, they benefit from the system. And so they're not willing to give up those benefits necessarily to make other people enjoy the benefits as well. So I think it's going to be a challenge. And I think you'll have pockets where some schools and some school districts are doing it well. And then you will continue to have pockets where there are schools and school districts who don't do it well and, mm-hmm. and they won't, they, they don't have any incentive to do it any differently than they're doing it currently. That makes sense. No, it does. It does. You know, when you mentioned the scale, did you say it was by um, Drs. Lewis? Lewis and Neville. Lewis and Neville. Okay. So how are they using the scale? Like what are they finding and are they using the scale to assist other schools are they using it so that they um, that school districts have a better understanding of how they can create a better design? So they didn't design it for educators. They just designed it for black women. And so I reached out to the lead author, um, Dr. Gianni Lewis. I believe mm-hmm. at the time she was at the University of Maryland. And I said, hey, I would like to use your scale. I'm interested in using it on educators. And so I it was my request to use it just on educators. And she, she agreed to allow me to use the scale, but she made, she said, you have to only use it for black women. That's who it was designed for. And okay. so that was her condition for me using it. So they didn't, their, um, their initial use of the scale and design um, of the scale did not necessarily limit it to um, black women educators. I wanted to use it in that way. Okay. And do you find that it was, um, do you find that once people participated, did they realize or did they have a a greater understanding or did they come to learn that, hey, maybe my situation is a hostile environment? So that was, that was something that was brought up during my IRB process. So we go through this process where they essentially are trying to make sure you're not going to be doing another Tuskegee experiment, essentially. Mm -hmm, And mm -hmm. so, and make sure you're not harming research participants. And so that was what they wanted to know. How are you defining hostility? And, and so in my marketing materials, like um, a flyer that I created, I talked about it briefly. And then as I'm in my writing, my dissertation, 
I define it more through the experiences that the participants endured and that they reported and in the use of the gendered racial microaggression scale as well. And so there were, I mean, part of the survey asked participants if they were victims of microaggression, like, and I defined uh, defined this term, microaggressions in the survey. And then I said, were you a victim or were you, were you a victim and who was the perpetrator? And then I did the same thing for racial discrimination, just defined it. And then were you a victim? Were um, Who was the perpetrator or did you witness it? And so there were a couple people who said they weren't vi- a victim to things. And, um, but then they said they witnessed it. And so it seemed like people witnessing it was very, like that was very harmful for, for them too. Like based mm-hmm. on their responses, having being a, a witness to something occurring to someone else. So that was very interesting to me. It seems like, you know, it would also be somewhat, I don't know, as you're hearing these stories, somewhat disheartening too. Did, did, did it kind of trigger you emotionally hearing some of these stories or doing these interviews? Um, you know, I would say they did, you know, I, I felt what some of the things were not surprising, but it was mm-hmm. still sad to hear them. I think that the people were so willing to share their stories. It was, it was kind of sad, you know, um, I was excited to be progressing in the dissertation, but it was, it was an unusual feeling because even within that excitement, I'm like, this is messed up, you know? Mm-hmm, that mm-hmm. that we have to go through this. We have to and, exactly, and that people still don't believe that we're going through this. Mm-hmm, like mm-hmm. because there, like there's certain like in New Jersey, you can be for like teachers, you can be non-renewed. They cannot renew your contract if you're not tenured. They cannot renew your contract and not really have a reason. They don't have to give you a reason. And so people, how do you how do you fight that? How do you say, or or there they can use language such as "not a good fit," a good yeah. fit for what? A good yeah. Fit what is what? a fit exactly? Yes, and, and so, they use that language a lot of different places. You know, mm-hmm. not a good fit, not a good fit. And so there was this, there was this image I saw that I don't know if you've seen it for a while. It was circulating the the internet. It was called the problem the problem woman of color it was color c o l o u r i think it was an organization based in canada maybe a nonprofit mm-hmm. organization where they they had this graphic image of this woman this black woman or i'm i'm saying black woman because of myself but this woman of color entering an organization and being this being welcomed in the beginning and then when they start to speak up and say things they start to become the problem and so Mm -hmm. it was interesting to see this image because hearing my own story in certain places that I've worked hearing other people's stories I can see myself in this image I can see Mm -hmm. them in this image and the image doesn't necessarily tell or allow the woman to talk about what what her experience was in this image, but it shows her journey and how she's exited out of the organization. So that was that was another inspirational image too, as well. Mm-hmm. You know, it's interesting that you said that people were eager to share their stories or to share their experiences and. You know, I'm not surprised by that because I think way too many times Black women in particular don't have the opportunity to have sounding boards, right? And um, to be able to actually speak it into uh, into the atmosphere makes them realize that they're not, you know, for lack of a better word, not going crazy or not imagining something is happening to them. But indeed, something is really happening. So I, I can't imagine that it was pretty cathartic for them to actually be able to share their experiences as well. Yeah, you're right. You know, this one um, woman, she she actually used the term gaslighting 
and I'm not a psychologist, mm-hmm. but I'm familiar with the term. And so mm-hmm. she she talked about how she would feel like in conversations with her administrator that that's what was happening. And she she talked about how she didn't like how the school was addressing or dealing with the aftermath of the George Floyd murder. And they weren't talking about it. They were just acting like it was business, business as usual. The students were confused and concerned. The families were confused and concerned. And some of the staff members were as well. And, and she just couldn't take it anymore. And she said that really bothered her that she wasn't going to be continuing her work there. And so mm-hmm. she she talked about how this administrator would basically try to tell her that that's not what she was experiencing. And and so she, the administrator advised her to seek some type of counseling that they provided because she was actually burnt out and not really experiencing what she wow. experienced. So, so she, so these, these participants were um, unique in terms of the fact that they were very educated, well-educated individuals. And so mm-hmm. that is not always the case, I guess, like everyone has a degree, you know, and everyone has sometimes advanced degrees. And so I, I was dealing with a very well-educated group of women who were able to identify and name their experiences. And so there's a level of beauty in that in terms of um, these women just being um, just so phenomenal and being able to understand what was happening with them and for them to be able to make a decision about what they were going to do. Were they Mm -hmm. going to leave? And some people would say, listen, I know what I'm dealing with here. I don't know what Mm -hmm. I'm going to be dealing with somewhere else. And Mm -hmm. I I figure it's going to probably be the same. I know, I know these devils over here. Right, right. I don't know those over there. And so that's that's mm-hmm. what some people were saying. They were going to ride it out. Some people were committed to riding it out because they were almost at retirement. They were making a certain salary. Nobody else was going to pay mm-hmm. them that. They Or some people were like, listen, I'm going to stay and I'm going to continue to be the disruptor and I'm going to advocate. And so it was interesting to see how these women were making these choices to how they were going to show up in their workplaces and then they can be who they want to be in these, these virtual groups, you know? Yeah. There's a, there's a beauty and a sadness to it, you know? No. Yeah, absolutely. It definitely sounds like it because, you know, you want, there's always this desire to help, but at the same time, you know, sometimes helping comes at a certain cost as well too. Right. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes being, you know, being stronger or being assertive, you know, comes at a cost. But is that cost worth it if it means that you are changing the landscape? If that means that you're assisting maybe another less seasoned teacher? So what is it that you think or how can our listeners maybe better support teachers, better support Black teachers, um, better support Black women teachers? I appreciate that question. And I feel like I don't have all the answers, you know? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I think that you can start, if you're in an environment where you don't have a lot, like if you are living in a space where there's not a lot of diversity and the teaching staff at your schools. Maybe you go to school board meetings and you use the opportunity during the public comment period to say, you know what? I noticed that um, the the makeup, the ethno-racial makeup of our teachers doesn't reflect that of our students. What are you doing? And ask the school boards, what are you doing to recruit and retain teachers of color so we can have a more diverse um, teaching staff. So maybe that means you're participating more in school board meetings. Maybe if you have a student in a school, I remember when my son was in elementary school, I his principal was a black man, but 
I don't, there might have been one black teacher there. And I said, mm-hmm. where, where the other, where, where's everybody else? And the principal's like, they're not applying. What you know, that's, that's not true. Yeah, I know. I know. <laughs> that's not true. Maybe, maybe right. the filter that he gets, maybe the filter of applications that he was receiving didn't include them. But ask these hard questions. If you are, if your child's in a school and you don't see the, um, the diversity in the teaching staff, not just black teachers, um, people of color, you know, um, men, like, mm-hmm. like ask those questions. Like, why don't we have uh, more of, the, of these types of teachers? What are you doing to create this environment where they want to come here and then they want to stay? So mm-hmm. asking those questions, I think if you do have black educators that you interact with, trust their expertise. A lot of, like a lot of these, a lot of these women were talking about being questioned constantly, even national surveys that were conducted by um, other research teams. They talked about teachers were saying that their, their expertise was questioned constantly, um, not just by their colleagues, but by parents and by students as well. Mm. And so get more accustomed to seeing different faces as experts. I think that's a starting point. It's not, of course, these aren't the only answers, but right, it's something that could impact, could impact or even maybe start the conversation. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I would even add to that, if I may, get to actually know them, right? Get to know their expertise or the levels of expertise, um, get to know them as individuals, not just as you know, someone who's just sitting in front of students all day because they could bring so much more to the table if you actually spend some time getting to know them. Yeah, and I think right. that would also help them feel better supported if they're not just seen as like this figurehead in front of a classroom. You're right. You're right. And, you know, I like that was one of my recommendations in my dissertation I to, to like uh, building-based administrators. Like if you have these individuals in your buildings, put them in positions to share their expertise with others, but don't do it as this additional labor that's not compensated. Mm -hmm. Find a way to compensate them for this additional sharing of their expertise, or if it's additional labor, then do that as well. I'm not, I'm not an advocate for unpaid labor just to show oh absolutely um, not <laughs> especially we're, we're beyond that point now right 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 people so, definitely need to be compensated and to feel yes. like they um, that they bring value to the table and the way that you show value is by paying them right yeah i i really you know when you first mentioned this topic to me um a while ago i was like this is so interesting and not just because of the title in and of itself but what, you know, the fact that there are other spaces that people aren't aware of and that they're using them to feel supported, to feel affirmed, like you mentioned earlier, um, to feel as if that they can have some additional resources for them, right? That they may not be getting in their own, um, in their own districts or in their own, you know, personal environment. So uh, I just thought it was such an interesting topic to explore. And so I'm really glad that you did not only explore it, but that you were willing to share it with me today. No, you know, it was, it was fun. You know, um, I, I say fun, but I always <laughs> welcome the com- the opportunity to speak with you. You know, we, we have great conversations. I, I'm still very passionate about the research and I'm looking forward to sharing it with other people and just thinking about what next steps are in terms of partnerships with others and writing papers and things of that nature. Mm-hmm. That's where I'm going next. And so that's my next question. So thank you. So what is Dr. Kirk going to be doing next? Like oh. as far as this research and just in general, like what's next for you? More school? More and, education? Um, I've Well, so I work at, at a university, but I'm a prof- I'm professional staff. So I'm considering um, the possibility of faculty role possibly mm-hmm. in the future, maybe um, in the next couple of years, looking at seeing what that looks like. I am open to consulting work with organizations and individuals as well. Mm-hmm. In In the near future, I'm going to be working on like publications, working on submitting to different publications to 
just get my research out there mm -hmm. and um, attending conferences and things of that nature. It, it's, you know, it's like I said, I, I, I'm a nerd and I'm, I'm okay with that. And I'm really <laughs> excited about learning new things and, and I get excited about this stuff. So I really feel like I have a lot of options and I like having options. I don't like being closed in what I need, what I have to do next. So I'm pretty excited about all the different options I have here. And I'm excited right there with you and we'll continue to support you um, because your next journey, I would love to have you come back and talk about that too. Oh, absolutely. I'll be there. <laughs> well, family, that's it for this episode of the No Good People podcast. Um, I appreciate you joining me and my guest, Dr. Mia Kirk. Um, Mia, would you like to leave our listeners with, you know, any last or final thoughts from you? Well, you know, um, sure. So what I'm finding is that as I share my journey on social media, that people are becoming inspired by the journey. Mm -hmm. And um, I'm, I'm very humbled by that. I've had people who have told me that they're going to go back to school and that's pretty exciting to me. So if anyone's any advice or is interested in learning more about what that journey could look like for them, I'm happy to um, share what I experienced and any advice or tips that may be helpful. You can find me on LinkedIn. That's one way for us to connect. Okay. And you said social media. Where are you where can they find you on social media? What are your, what are your handles? I'm on Instagram. Uh, my, I'm Mimi Hills, M-I-M-I-H-I-L-L-S-7 on Instagram. Awesome. And I hope that um, we definitely have people that reach out to you. Uh, we'll make sure to include your handles on our, um, not only in our podcast, but also on our social media as well, so that people definitely can reach out to you and not only share their experiences, but again, get some resources and maybe pick your brain. But understand that this is an expert. And if she's sharing her expertise, that it may come at a cost to you. So please value Dr. Mia Karp. Well, again, everyone, thank you so much for joining me. Um, be sure to subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you hear something you like, be sure to share. Until next time, I'm Vera Smith-Winfrey. And remember, yeah. it's always good to know good people. Thank you, Mia. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. For more podcasts from No Good People, visit Spotify, Audible, Apple Podcasts, or yeah. wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Thanks for listening.